Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco Radio with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. I'll be here in the next 60 minutes with the best interviews and reports from Monaco Radio this week. This time we look at King Charles III coronation. While this idea seems indeed to have prompted a fair bit of swearing and a good few oaths, they have not been the kind Buckingham Palace wanted. Plus, the great British singer Jesse Ware. They go, well, you know, there's loads of parallels with... And you're like, I didn't even think about it. I was just trying to make a beat and have a dance um, and try and see how filthy I could go with innuendo. All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And the Foreign Desk Explainer this week, Andrew Muller tells us more about the coronation of King Charles III. This Saturday, Charles III will be formally crowned King of the United Kingdom and 14 other countries in an elaborate Beano at London's Westminster Abbey. His wife, Camilla, the Queen Consort, will undergo something similar. Regular listeners to the Foreign Desk, like there are any other kind and so forth, may recall that we went all in on the last major British royal wingding, i.e. the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II last September, episode 455 of the Foreign Desk, still available wherever superior podcasts are downloaded, explored the diplomatic and soft power subtexts of the event with a cast including King Letzia III of Lesotho. One of our better efforts, if we say so ourselves. This Saturday, however, we're not going all in on the coronation, but all in on the following week's Eurovision Song Contest. These are, of course, vastly different occasions, as one is, and we've probably just got another one of these in us, a gaudy and incomprehensible circus of baffling weirdos in silly outfits capering bemusingly about to a soundtrack of dismal music, narrated by unduly reverent commentary utterly out of tune with the pointing and jeering at the television contemporaneously occurring on millions of sofas around the world, and the other is the Eurovision Song Contest. Here all week... Thanks for coming out. Try the coronation quiche. Anyway, this frankly ill-judged scheduling means that the coronation doesn't get a full episode of the Foreign Desk and is instead downgraded to this mere explainer. And perhaps this may come to be viewed by posterity as an inadvertent metaphor for the declining relevance of the monarchy itself. Who knows? Come on. Just get on with it. Before we get into what the coronation itself consists of, it's important to note that it doesn't bear any constitutional significance. Charles is already king, and indeed has been since the moment his mother died. The Prince Charles Philip Arthur George is now, by the death of our late sovereign of happy memory, become our only lawful and rightful liege lord, Charles III. There isn't a halfway house king-elect sort of thing going on, not least as nobody elected him. Right there is some of the feeler satire which listeners have come to expect from this, the Foreign Desk Explainer. Advocates of monarchies are fond of pitching the continuity angle. 
that whatever else may be washed in, out or away by the tides of history, the roots of one family's tree will nevertheless bind the soil of a nation, enabling the general flourishing and blooming. On that score, Britain's monarchy has put up impressive numbers. The first monarch crowned at the original Westminster Abbey was William the Conqueror on Christmas Day 1066. The first crowned in the Abbey as it currently stands was Edward I in 1274. And the same arrangement has been made for every monarch since, with the exceptions of Edward V, who died in murky circumstances in the Tower of London in 1483, aged 12, before anybody could put a crown on his head and Edward VIII, who abdicated in 1936, six months prior to his planned coronation, to the vexation of retailers lumbered with the souvenir tea towels. Though proceedings went ahead as scheduled with his bewildered brother, Prince Albert of York, being upgraded to King George VI. I present unto you, King George, your undoubted king, wherefore all you who have come this day to do your homage and service, are you willing to do the same? A lot of what will go on this Saturday will be arcane, abstruse or just plain odd, though this is arguably only to be expected from the accretion of nearly a millennium's worth of tradition and ritual. The king will recite a number of oaths. He will be daubed with holy oil, although as was the case at his mother's coronation, the first one ever televised, this will be done off camera, behind the anointing screen, a recently acquired product of the Royal School of Needlework, the worshipful company of broderers, drapers and weavers, and the worshipful company of carpenters all of which sounds like the bands formed in the wake of a vicious bitter schism in a mid-70s folk group, but are all real things. It is known, however, that the holy oil was consecrated in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem back in March, and will be poured from the beak of a gold eagle into a 14th century spoon. The king will be presented with a bunch of clanking paraphernalia, including but not limited to a couple of maces, a pair of scepters, a few swords, a set of spurs, some bracelets, bracelets no less of sincerity and wisdom, an orb, a ring, a gauntlet, a selection of crowns, and more changes of cape than an Elton John encore. There will be an amount of chair hopping from the chairs of estate used by Charles's mother to the throne chairs used by his grandfather to the coronation chair commissioned by Edward I circa 1296. Mounted therein is the 150 kilogram stone of destiny. Shipped down from Edinburgh for the occasion. It is perhaps an ambiguous symbol of the Union, given that before a wooden platform was installed above the rock's resting place during the 17th century, it furnished incoming monarchs with a literal pain in the backside. It is probably just as well that Saturday's spectacle is so completely beholden to immemorial strangeness. The primary innovation, other than coronation quiche, which has been floated for KC3's coronation, is sensationally misjudged. An invitation to those watching, especially in large gatherings, to participate in the swearing of an oath of loyalty to the new king. 
It may just be the company that your correspondent keeps, but while this idea seems indeed to have prompted a fair bit of swearing and a good few oaths, they have not been the kind Buckingham Palace wanted. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller. We move on now to journalism. A highlight from my show, The Stack. Tom Webb spoke to Alan Rusbiger, former editor-in-chief of The Guardian, and now editor of UK monthly current affairs title, Prospect. I'm about to do an event with another small UK publisher, The New European, and its editor, Matt Kelly, who's done this extraordinary thing of starting a new newspaper, which I don't think anybody thought there was a a space for a new newspaper, but he's proved that there is. So we're going to talk about that, and I hope we're going to talk about Prospect and the future of magazines. So why is it hard to start a newspaper in this current climate? Well, I think if you'd asked anybody five years ago, they would have said the future was digital, that newspapers certainly are on the decline, circulation's tumbling all over the place. And so it's quite counterintuitive to actually produce something in print, which also has a website. And actually, I've never sat down and talked about how he managed it. So I will be genuinely learning things in this session. So how is it that some magazines are surviving? Well, I I think the answer he will give, and it's certainly what I feel about Prospect, is that the world of news in general has got onto a hamster wheel and it can't get off it. That's not the fault of news providers. That's the fault of us, the readers and consumers, because we're constantly reaching into our pockets to check the headlines every five minutes. And so I think the winners are the magazines and newspapers that are taking a a longer view and are slowing down a bit and are a bit more thoughtful and reflective. I hope that's the case, but the evidence seems to bear it out. Can you tell us more about Prospect? Prospect is a 25-year-old political monthly It's now owned by essentially a philanthropist who would like it to be a good business. It's not not quite a good business yet. And it does what I've just described. So it's trying to think two, three, four months ahead about what will matter. It kind of, you know, as, as the editors, we have to sort of switch our minds off the headlines. So to give a couple of examples of, of recent covers... In January, we got Jonathan Powell, who was the architect of the Good Friday Agreement, to write about what peace in the Ukraine will look like. Now, nobody's talking about that at the moment. Nobody's talking about the negotiation. But his point was that eventually they will have to negotiate, and this is what they'll have to talk about. The following month, we had David Normington, who was the permanent secretary at the Home Office in the early 2000s, write about immigration. And he began by saying, look, all the headlines are about small boats, Actually, the small boats, it's a relatively small number. That is solvable. Why is nobody talking about the big picture? So I think that's what a magazine like Prospect can do. And does Prospect have any ambitions to be more international? Well, we tried to be international in in our thinking and in our commissioning. It would be lovely if we could sell lots of copies abroad. I mean, the, the people who come to the website come from all over the world. I think it's about half UK, half not UK. But it's another thing, I think, that magazines like Prospect can do, which is to escape what sometimes feels like quite a claustrophobic parochial atmosphere in some British media. And your time as editor of The Guardian, how are you bringing that experience and and wealth of skills into your new role? 
Well, I, I did that for 20 years, and obviously you acquire, I hope you do, I hope, I hope you acquire editing skills, judgment, a sense of what works journalistically, what doesn't, a sense of who writes well, a sense of who the audience is, a sense of how the technology of news and information and social media now work. All that comes to bear, but I have to say, editing a daily, which eventually became an hourly, if not minutely, <laughs> news organization, is very different from sitting there with a cold compress on your head thinking, now what's going to be really important in September? So finally then, what is it about a, a magazine that attracted you to this position? Well, I do like training myself into this habit of reading and thinking about the news in a completely different way. And I think probably I would have to admit when I was at The Guardian, I did get too caught up in the the hour-by-hour hour rhythm of news. It's addictive. It's um, It's probably very bad for the body because you end up pumping adrenaline through your system, which makes you constantly feel jittery. But actually, my last year at The Guardian... I did set up what I called a slow news department. I'd sort of created a, an area where people were encouraged to make phone calls, to read books, to go out and lunch contacts, to think more deeply about issues, so that you had the, the news desk churning out the headlines of the moment, and then people thinking about, well, where did this come from and where's it going? I think those are two good questions that, that need to be asked in, in any news story. How did this happen? Because things don't come from nowhere. And has it likely to end? So, yeah, I, I kind of, um, I, I was going to say I miss daily news. I don't think I do miss daily news, but it's nice to, to move my journalistic training into thinking about more long-term issues. And do you know if your legacy of slow news has continued? Well, I started the long read in The Guardian, and that's still going. So that's a, a read of about 4,000 words. And I think it's really important to have those long spaces because, I mean, famously, the attention span of everybody has got shorter. And frighteningly, you can now measure that. You can see when people stop reading an article. And I think the response of a lot of editors has not unnaturally been to write shorter pieces. That's fine. But there are some problems and issues that can only be told at length, if you truly want, you know, if you truly want to do justice to the, the question of immigration, which is a really thorny issue about which people have very strongly held opinions, sure, you can write, you can do that in 400 words, you can do it in 800 words, but you're unlikely to get into the nuance. And I think there is a problem with quite a lot of journalism that it's, it's not really helping policymakers and politicians either prepare the public for what they need to know, brackets, think climate change, or what the answers are. So if everything is presented as an easy win or an easy solution or a shatty headline, I don't think that's really good for, for societies we live in and how we, how we come up with the solutions that we need. So I do think having somewhere that may not have a mass readership but can get into problems in, in some depth is important. You are listening to The Curator on Monaco Radio.
the 2014 kidnapping of 276 Nigerian schoolgirls by the West African Islamist terror group Boko Haram was one of those horrors which briefly transfixed the world, before the world lost, as it usually does, interest. The Canadian journalist Melissa Fung did not. She perceived echoes in the story of her own kidnapping while reporting in Afghanistan in 2008 and set out to meet some of the hostages who escaped Boko Haram's clutches. The result is the book Between Good and Evil, The Stolen Girls of Boko Haram. Let's have a listen to our chat with her. I think sometimes as journalists we forget what happens when the recorders are off and the cameras are off because you've asked somebody to recount the worst experience of their life. In fact, you're re-traumatizing them. You run mm. that risk of having them live through that trauma again. I personally have experienced that, and I know how hard that is. Once you are asked about what's happened, and then the interview's over, and then you sit with it again, right? It resurfaces the trauma. And so I was really careful not to do that to the girls. And so in the book, I make it very clear in the beginning, we had many, many conversations about what happened to them. We had the cameras rolling and they were talking to other people. And so they would tell different versions of their story, mm. right? Like one girl said, oh, when Boko Haram came to the village, I was in the fields with my mother. And then a couple years later, when Boko Haram came to the village, I was at school, <laughs> right? And so instead of then sitting her down and saying, oh, tell me that again, I just took what she said the first time because maybe that was fresher. I didn't want her to have to sit there and think about it and go back to that moment. And so I make that clear. I kind of knit together their narratives, mm. just the way they've come out. And, you know, sometimes they contradict themselves. But that's part of, I think, memory and how trauma can erode some memories and sharpen other memories. Because I think I have experience in recounting what happened to me, I'm a bit more understanding about how memory sometimes fails us. Is there also a lesson in uh, relative news values? Because the Boko Haram, the first large-scale kidnapping, was a huge story for a few weeks. Everybody got terribly excited about it. People tweeted the hashtag, bring back our girls, held up signs saying, bring back our girls. And then, as is the way of things, everybody lost interest and moved on. And it is a statement of the obvious. But if not even dozens, if hundreds of schoolgirls had been kidnapped in Europe, it would have been all anybody talked about for months, if not years, and militaries would have been mobilized to go and get them back. Is there anything at all to be done about that, do you think? That seems like something that should have changed in a more interconnected and aware world. I think because we're more interconnected, there's so much social media that it's not great for following up on stories because constantly we move on to the next thing. And so I think that it falls upon journalists to go back and maybe years later, maybe months later, to figure out what really happened and what the consequences were. So I think the onus is on us more to sort of weed through the noise that we are constantly 
being barraged with on a daily basis and go back and take a more thoughtful look at some of these stories. The book is much more about the victims and survivors of Boko Haram than about Boko Haram themselves. But I did wonder if you perceived a commonality in motivation between Boko Haram and, again, tying it to your own experiences, the people who held you captive. Did you perceive something similar in them? Because what I often end up wondering myself about broadly similar organizations is is it really just young men who enjoy carrying guns around and blowing things up and if you give them an excuse to do that then they'll do it or do you think there is actually more going on than that well boko haram actually modeled themselves after the taliban Mm. right the name means western education is forbidden and sadly when we look at afghanistan today you know it is forbidden to half the population girls are not in school and the girls were very curious about my captors, Mm. the Taliban sympathizers, they wanted to know, you know, what did they think about girls going to school? What did they think about this, right? Because I think their captors had sort of a similar philosophy, similar ideas. And I think, yes, it is a bunch of young men, but, you know, look at where it's happening, right? Northeastern Nigeria is quite impoverished compared to the rest of the country. And there are not a lot of opportunities for young men who don't go to school for whatever reason. And so they end up being very easily influenced by the leaders of this group, but who give them a community and give them money and marry them off to women. And I think, you know, again, that's where education comes in. And it's not surprising. I I like to say when I'm at home in Canada, you know, young men falling in with the wrong crowd, they fall into criminal gangs there. But in Nigeria, it's Boko Haram. In Afghanistan, it's the Taliban. The book draws extremely rich portraits of the experiences and the characters of your subjects, but obviously there is a delay in between a book being finished and a book being published, and no spoilers or anything, but people who read the book will get to know characters like Gambo and Zara and Asmao, and, the, and they will be curious. Are you still in touch with them? Definitely. How I'm are they in all touch doing? With them. Well, you know, they're okay. We stopped the book in 2019. That's where the book stops. I really try to help them go back to school. So we found a boarding school near Yola that would take them. Unfortunately, after the first semester, they were falling so far behind the rest of the class that the principal asked them to leave. So then we found another boarding school somewhere else. And the same thing happened. And, you know, we hired a tutor to work with them after classes. And so they're out of school. So now we're talking about some skills training for them. You know, I'm trying to ask them what it is they want to do. And Asmao, for example, has taken up sewing. So she's asked for a sewing machine. Gambo is selling children's clothes, right? So she's asking for some help with that. Zara is still noodling things around. She's, you know, busy kind of pouring all her energy into her little daughter, Aisha, and I often think that the dreams that she left behind in the forest, she's kind of put them all on this little girl. I'm hoping that, you know, by raising some awareness of their plight and, you know, that of their friends, that the world will maybe think back to that time and realize that it's really not over for a lot of these women there. And our high-profile guest here on The Curator, Monaco's Andrew Muller, spoke to Kosovo's Prime Minister, Albin Kurti. 
First of all, Prime Minister, you, you are here travelling abroad as Prime Minister of Kosovo, but in a country which doesn't yet recognise that Kosovo exists. How strange is that as a, a diplomatic conundrum? It used to be stranger, but now it's less strange because the relations, bilateral relations between Kosovo and Greece have improved. We have increased our trade exchange, we have increased economic cooperation, Greece is being uh, constructive in international arena. If they cannot support us, then at least they abstain. So in this way, I must say that the relations between Kosovo and Greece has never been better since we declared independence 15 years ago. And in particular, we managed now to elevate the status of our uh, diplomatic representation in Athens to an office for... Um, economic issues. So it's, it, it's, it's still an ongoing process trying to win recognition for Kosovo. If I've done the maths right out of the countries recognized by the UN, you're 101 down, 92 to go? We have 117 recognitions and uh, among uh, the countries who recognize us are 22 out of 27 in EU and 26 out of 30 in uh, NATO. Uh, Greece, for example, recognizes our passports, mm. uh, traveling documents, and uh, we have a mutual diplomatic uh, representation. So also the countries who do not recognize us are not the same. Some are better than others. <laughs> Which ones are you most optimistic about? I think the last three you nailed down were Bangladesh, Barbados and Israel. So it's quite a, uh, quite a diverse allotment. Uh, yes, uh, we have recognitions in all continents, but uh, likewise we have non-recognizers in all continents. And uh, we are doing our best with our uh, foreign service, but also our partners and friends from the, let's say, democratic West uh, help us a great deal in uh, us moving forward towards uh, new recognitions. Uh, you mentioned earlier that Greece is at least uh, abstaining on things now where Kosovo is concerned, and by that I assume you meant the, the first hurdle that Kosovo has cleared to membership of the Council of Europe, but that in itself did seem to demonstrate that there's maybe not a lot of progress with your relations with Serbia. Serbia's foreign minister called it a day of shame for the Council of Europe and for Greece. We passed the first hurdle towards membership in Council of Europe and I must say that we deserve that membership because uh, in the last uh, couple of years we have done uh, tremendous progress when it comes to three fundamental values of uh, Council of Europe, namely rule of law, uh, democratization and uh, human rights. Uh, according to Freedom House, regarding the improvement in political rights and civil liberties, we're second in Europe, third in the world, first in the Balkans. According to World Justice Project, in terms of rule of law, second in the world in terms of improvement in this field, and first in the Western Balkans. Then, um, according to IMF, regarding the increase in revenue collection, in 2020-2022, we are the first in Western Balkans. Reporters Without Borders, Media Freedom Index 2022, Kosovo improves by 17 places, record improvement in one year and highest ranking in the last decade. Transparency International's Corruption Perception Index, Kosovo rises 20 places in 
two years, achieving its highest ever ranking out of 180 countries. So basically, uh, in a merit-based approach, all were convinced that we should move forward. Unfortunately, Serbia voted against our progress, and in this way, managed also to violate the agreement that uh, we have reached in Brussels on 27th of February and then added the implementation annex in uh, Ohorin Ohrid on 18th of uh, March. So I must say that uh, quite often when they say things about us, they rather speak of themselves. Is it really a violation of that agreement, though? Because as I understood it, the agreement was they wouldn't impede Kosovo joining international bodies. They didn't say they'd have to vote for you. They say that um, uh, they are against our membership, and then they voted against our progress towards membership. We still did not become members of Council of Europe, but according to Article 4 of Basic Treaty that we have endorsed in Brussels in late February this year, they were not supposed to vote no. They were not supposed to encourage others to obstruct our progress. Uh, However, they've done so. Uh, This means that um, there are these elements that uh, are indicative that uh, their agreement to the text that has been uh, proposed by EU has not been done really in good faith. I want to ask finally about the, the beginning of the trial in, in Brussels of, of, of Hashim Thaci, and he, he was, of course, the, the leader of the, the Kosovo Liberation Army at around the time of the 1999 war. He was uh, revered not just in Kosovo, but across the Western world of the, as, the, the, as the George Washington uh, figure of, of Kosovo's independence. Uh, how does that trial now register as a domestic political factor in Kosovo? Do, is it something that... that people are upset about? Do you fear that it might turn public opinion against European institutions? I know the ICC is not an EU thing, but nevertheless, it is situated in the Netherlands. Every spring, we commemorate uh, dozens of big massacres that uh, took place in Kosovo in uh, 1999, when uh, over 10,000 unarmed uh, civilians uh, were killed by uh, Milosevic's police and armed forces in their horseshoe operation of exterminating uh, Albanians. And at this point in time, to see this uh, court sessions in Hague in parallel to uh, Mr. Vucic and uh, Mr. Dacic uh, speaking the same language as Mr. Milosevic is very hard for people of Kosovo. Specialist chambers in Hague cannot really be applauded for transparency. And on the other hand, we really lack justice for uh, over 1,600 missing persons and for all the people who got killed, for women who got raped, and for material devastation that took place out of uh, campaign of genocide of uh, Milosevic, Serbia and Yugoslavia. There is no feeling of equality of arms among the people of Kosovo and I think that uh, international community should uh, sooner rather than later address this uh, asymmetric uh, approach regarding facing and addressing the past. 
UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are listening to The Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monaco Radio, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Jesse Ware's fifth album, That Feels Good, is a disco-tinged celebration of pop music and pleasure. Monaco's Robert Bowne was delighted to have Jesse Ware visit him at Midori House and tell him about the process of putting the record together. Mm, that feels good. That, that mm. good. That feels good. It's such a vibey record. Thank you. It's been wonderful. It's been used for some pre-release soundtrack dance parties in SE3. Okay, good. And is it as fun to make a record that sounds that fun or is it a, is it a, is it a work of teeth grinding lunacy until it comes out and then you're like this is wonderful we, it, it sounds like this. It is fun, but there was a lot of kind of frustration making this record because we were still part of a lockdown when I started mm. making it. So we were making a lot of it over the internet on Zoom, which I don't advise to anybody for anybody to do ever. Yeah. I never want to go back there. However, maybe that's what made things like Begin Again and That Feels Good happen because there was this need for escapism. Um, it was so fun working with James Ford again, Shun Goodzo, Danny. Yeah. Um, but And also meeting Stuart Price, who I hadn't worked with before, who's done records like Confessions on the Dance Floor. It so was fun. Pet Shop Boys, someone called Madonna, yes. I believe. Yes. Um, yeah. Decent pedigree. Yeah, not bad. Um, and uh, so it's, it's, um, it was fun. I think I was having fun. Okay. Um, so the Zoom, we'll have a look in the archive of the Zoom comments section. Yeah, right? exactly. I mean, period. no, look, the Zooms, I, I, I never want to make music like that ever again, but only part of the record was made like that. Mm. And I think... Yeah, the the title is representative of, of of how I was feeling and where I'm at. So yeah, it was yeah. it was good fun. Nice, because if the lockdown was like a a funny chrysalis, this is the butterfly. This has gone bananas. It's such a, a brilliant sounding like record. Thank you. Yeah, I think <laughs> it was. It was meant to be danced. Kind of and, enough of this. Let's get out there. Yeah, and yeah. I'm glad that you're. You're putting it on, um, and 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 people are dancing. It's it's to be enjoyed. It's it's. I think my job as a musician artist is to entertain and um, make people feel good. At the mm. moment, that's my job, and yeah. I think that hopefully I've I've succeeded in that. Is it kind of nice now? You're in promo mode, and you're talking about it. Um, I I guess it loses a sense of its reality in a certain way. It becomes kind of more abstract than actually making the thing and listening to it over and over again and perfecting it. Is it nice also to talk about such a vibey record? Is it is it a easier thing to talk about than a more confessional record or a more kind of quiet record? I wonder. Yeah, totally. It's also really interesting when people tell you about the record and they go, "Well, you know, there's loads of parallels with," and you're like, "I didn't even think about it. I was just trying to make a beat and have a dance." <laughs> Um, and try and see how filthy I could go with innuendo. Um, but no, it is really, it's quite interesting seeing how 
I'm now understanding, which uh, was unbeknownst to me when I was making it and putting it together, kind of the parallels of some of the lyrics and mm. all of that. So that's, but that's very much thanks to people, intelligent people like you that analyse it or, you know, because um, I wasn't doing any you're the, of that. You're the one with the parallels, Jesse. Oh, well. <laughs> um, but, but no, it is uh, it is much more fun talking about a record that is just meant to be enjoyed because it kind of is supposed to do what it says yeah. on the tin. Yeah, and you can be a brilliant, you can be vibey when you're yeah, talking about it. Yeah, Not that you wouldn't normally be. I no, but I'm also in a good place. I think I'm very happy with all the different hats that I wear and, yeah. and doing all the different things that I do. I, I appreciate that. So Yeah. It'd be nice to have a chat about some of that stuff because collaboration is something that's now kind of in the family as mm, well. Mm. We'll come to Lenny. table manners a little bit later <laughs> yeah, on. Fine. But back back to that feels good. Mm-hmm. That, ladies and gentlemen, feels good. Does it annoy you that it's got no, the exclamation like or do you like of, it? It's more like I'm kind of doing a voiceover to sell it now. It feels <laughs> like, it's like that feels good. Maybe, Available hey, now. I don't know if we've done the telly promo yet. Right. So look, you may, okay. you, if you fancy it. There you go. Yeah, with my sort of cheesy DJ <laughs> voice on. Very good. <laughs> and making an album, presumably, you've gone through different processes. You've done yeah. the Zoom thing, back and forth to LA, all yeah. the rest of it. When, when you're making an album, how do you keep the vibe? Because that's the thing. Because this has obviously got, you know, there's slower numbers in the middle of the record and stuff like that. But um, it's got a kind of very continuous vibe. Do you have to kind of keep that going? Do you have to, is that a production thing? Is that your sort of songwriting backbone? How do you kind of keep the keep the rhythm of the production of it? Kind I of think you're kind of, you've got like an inventory of when you're making these songs. When you're first starting out to make the record, you're just kind of going, what what's going to happen? Yeah what's going to be created and then you start getting a few of your faves and you keep on returning to them my poor husband has to listen to them with my kids and I'm like this one's really great isn't it babe and he's like yeah it's fine can we just park for the park Um, so (laughs) that happens so you start in my head I'm constantly changing the track listing it's completely about making sure that the set works. And I'm yeah. always thinking Your about Your albums it. are albums. They're, yeah. They're listen-throughs, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it, particularly for the last two, it's been very important for it to feel like a set list, mm. to feel like there's, you know, ebbs and flows and ups and downs and, and breathers. And so it's very much... But you have to write the songs, so it's very much about which one... <laughs> there is that. Yeah. yeah. So you've got to think about what... I, I was very much thinking about this in conjunction with... What's Your Pleasure, my last record, and about how a song like Shake the Bottle on this record could really work well with Ooh La La from yeah. What's Your Pleasure. Yeah. So for me, it was it was not only making the record, but me thinking about how this was going to translate live and how it was going to uh, complement these other songs. So for me, it was kind of partnering up songs together or making threes of things. But yeah, the vibe. You keep it, I guess, because... You, I'm trying to make a dance record. Yeah. So if there's a groove and a beat and it makes me want to dance, then I guess there's a vibe there. And yeah. it's about how you fit that in. And now the producer of the show, the curator, David Stevens. Yes, he indeed. He now investigates a particularly well-choreographed way to cross the road for Tall Stories this week. You may not be aware of it, but chances are, if you've wandered the streets of a city before, you've been to a barn's dance. Not a barn dance, although reportedly the name was coined to resemble that term, 
but a Barnes dance, named after the American traffic engineer Henry Barnes. For less avid readers of traffic signalling manuals, the particular feature of pedestrian parlance I'm referring to is also known as a scramble intersection or a diagonal crossing, an intersection where the cars stop and the people go. The most famous of these is surely in central Tokyo. Shibuya Crossing has long been used in cutaway shots of the Japanese capital to show the chaotic buzz of the city. When the lights turn green, hundreds if not thousands of pedestrians stream in all directions across the intersection. Some estimates claiming up to 3,000 people crossing in a single change. The crossing's namesake Henry Barnes wasn't in fact the inventor of the system, although he has spoken in support of it. As a traffic engineer in the US, a country where the life of a pedestrian isn't always easy, he could surely see the impact such signals could have on the public. During a recent visit to Dallas, Texas, I was taken aback by how difficult road layout and street signals could make life for those who prefer walking or rolling to using a car. Long waits, street crossings broken into, and crucially, the lack of ability to head straight for my destination diagonally were common obstacles in my insistence not to take a ride-sharing platform just to travel a mile or two. Despite their seeming hostility though, North America was the first to adopt the pedestrian scramble. After trials in Canada and the US in the 1940s, the system was rolled out in various spots throughout America. The first diagonal crossing didn't make it to the UK, however, for over 50 years, opening in Ballantown Centre in 2005. While the idea had American pedestrians dancing in the streets, according to a City Hall reporter quoted in Barnes' autobiography, the system wasn't supported by everyone. Robert Moses, that much maligned New York urban planner, apparently disliked the idea because of its disruption to his, and everyone else's, beloved automobile. Officially, this type of crossing was called the exclusive pedestrian interval, and as such, gave the streets up entirely to the pedestrian, causing heavy interruption in traffic. But the Barnes dance speaks to a wider need for our cities everywhere. For decades, roadways have worked to achieve one thing, vehicular efficiency, and more and more space has been handed over to the car. Some cities are varying in the opposite direction, though. A number of major cities have been experimenting with versions of a car-free city centre, such as Barcelona or Paris. But for those spots where the car and the pedestrian will still interact, cities need to start prioritising those most at risk. They also need to incentivise good behaviour. Many of our cities are tackling climate questions that can only be improved by more people choosing active transport over fossil fuel. Offering more and better ways to get around by feet or wheels in our city has got to be worth making a song and dance about. You are listening to The Curator, and one of my favourite music genres at the moment is Japanese city pop, which is from the 80s. It's a mixture of AOR, funk, disco... It's delicious. I spoke to Yosuke Kitasawa. He's behind the Japanese city pop compilation Pacific Breeze 3. City pop, it's sort of a genre, but stylistically, there isn't like a set definition of what city pop is. So... When the team first started working on these compilations, the first thing we asked ourselves is, what is city pop? How do we define city pop? And basically, it's like a vibe. It's kind of corny to say that it's a vibe, but since stylistically it varies quite a bit, but there's a thread that runs through 
all the songs in these compilations that you can call it city pop and it kind of makes sense to us. And basically, all these tracks are from the mid 70s to around the mid 80s. And that's the era in Japan that a lot of people call the bubble era when the economy was doing really well and there was lots of money flowing everywhere and the record companies had a lot of money to spend on these records. And the feeling that they wa wanted to convey with this music was that leisure and just like cruising down the boulevard in a convertible and just like basically spending their money for leisure and just to have fun. That's the vibe that kind of runs through all the tracks. Why the revival? Why do you think this is happening? Is it something more the international audience is finally noticing the spirit in Japan? Or do you feel that also in Japan people are actually saying, oh, you know what, we like the music from this period. And perhaps it becomes even influential in today's artists as well. It's gotten a revival in Japan as well. I guess in Japan it would be called a revival, but overseas it's basically entirely a new thing. Almost all of it, they never came out outside of Japan. So for audiences and for fans outside of Japan, it's new music to them. In Japan, I guess it's a revival and it happened probably around the same time as all the other parts of the world. And a big part of it is probably like a nostalgia. It's been written about that it's not real nostalgia because they didn't actually live through these eras, but it's just this feeling that they get of imagined nostalgia, I think is a lot of people use to describe the feeling when they listen to this stuff. It's like they listen to it and feel that they're transported into yeah, They were part of the, of the whole movement, of the whole era. Right, right. How did the revival start? Was there kind of something that happened? Or tell us about the process. Well, this revival, people have different theories about how it started. But to us, as the producers of these compilations, it was always about record shopping. And like whenever any of us went to Japan, we would go to the record shops. And these were basically like the dollar bin finds that you would find in the back of the store. No one was really paying attention to them. But a lot of DJs started buying the stuff because it just sounded so good and it sounds great when you play it at a club or anywhere. And that's how a lot of international, like overseas, the trend kind of got started just through DJs and them buying up like Tatsuro Yamashita or like Masayoshi Takanaka, like all those records that, that were kind of everywhere at the time in Japan. And just kind of slowly spread through those circles, like the DJ club circles. And in some ways in Japan, some people heard that it's getting kind of popular overseas and then it's like a reverse import. I think they actually have a word for that. Because people like to see like, oh, something that actually is from our country actually is doing very well. So it's kind of, it makes you feel proud almost, I guess, right? Right. Yeah, people in Japan started paying attention to this type of music again because they started hearing that it was getting popular overseas. So there's that theory of the revival that happened. And 
even in Japan and parts of Asia as well, there were DJs that were playing. And in places like South Korea, like there, there were DJs that specialize in playing city pop music. And yeah, I think that's kind of how it started spreading. And then the first volume of Pacific Breeze came out in 2018 or 19, I believe. And that also helped a lot in the spread of this music. Tell us about some of the artists in Pacific Breeze. Uh, three. I mean, do you want to make sure that there's a kind of a nice mix? Perhaps some songs are more well-known and sometimes there's some rarities as well. Because I have to say, I mean, it's an, it's amazing. I love the song Scandal Night, the one by Pizzicato 5 as well. There's so many good right. choices in there. But tell us about some of the highlights of Pacific Breeze 3. Yeah, with Volume 3, a lot of the songs were tracks that we were trying to put on the previous volumes, but due to licensing issues or just taking a long time, we weren't able to put them until this one, like Scandal Night by Mihari Koshi that you just mentioned. That's the track that we were trying to get like since the first one. And That's kind of like an old school city pop track. I and mean, we, we always like to include something like from the early period of what we describe as the city pop era and that that's like the mid 70s mid to early 70s like that would be considered like early it's almost like proto city pop <laughs> Susan Asoka kind of bridges the gap between the, the city pop era and like the new wave post-punk, a little bit different from the more, I would say, like R&B and soul-influenced city pop tracks. I guess there's more of that type of tracks on this one. We kind of see this as the final volume of the compilation. Oh, so no. We kind of, <laughs> well, you never know. But <laughs> in our mind, we were thinking like we wanted to include tracks that could bridge the gap into the next era of Japanese pop almost like the start of J-pop. Like, what would that be that would come between city pop and J-pop? And that's why we want to include tracks like Pizzicato 5, Boy Meets Girl. And they're pretty well known as J-pop. Oh, now you made me happy. So actually, it's not quite the end. It's perhaps just preparing for, who knows, a future compilation in the future, which I'm sure we would all love. And by the way, there's a song called Tropical Love, right? I right. even felt there's some reggae touches to it. Maybe I'm going crazy, but I really loved that one as well. Definitely, yeah. I mean, that track I really love also. Teresa Noda, she was mostly known as an actress. And she made this track with uh, Ryuichi Sakamoto as the arranger. And there are actually some musicians from Jamaica. I'd have to look it up, but I think people like Marcia Griffiths and... A lot of the well-known session guys from Jamaica that played on a lot of reggae records, like they, they appear on this one as well.
Finally on the show, Monaco Stone Edwards spoke to Marisa Poster, co-founder of Perfect Tad, and she shares the story of the creation of a new kind of energy drink. I started drinking matcha green tea in college. I have ADHD and anxiety, like many people do, and I was drinking tons of coffee and energy drinks to help me get through the long study days during uni, and I just could not function properly. I was suffering from jitters, crashes. My anxiety was incredibly heightened, and I knew there had to be a better way. A friend recommended I try it, and genuinely it changed my life because I felt energized, but without all of the negatives of caffeine. So I wasn't overstimulated, I didn't feel anxious, and I just felt like my best self. I'm about three coffees in. So I'm probably, well, I'm probably an exemplar. Maybe I need to, we could literally do this whilst we're recording. Why do you think it is, though, that we're so trapped in this dynamic particularly when it comes to coffee because here in this building i can we have our own coffee shop at monaco obviously but people are evangelical about it so why do you think that is is it just because it's so habit forming for sure i think it's so ingrained in our culture coffee drinking goes back hundreds and hundreds of years however matcha green tea goes back about 800 years in japan and it's so ingrained in their culture matcha to the japanese is like coffee to the english so i think we've been socialized to want to drink coffee from a young age and because it's the most i guess prevalent option available in cafes so i think as more alternatives become available, you'll slowly see people switching from coffee to alternatives. Okay, we're going to do... This is unusual for the entrepreneurs. We're going to do... This is my three-tap technique for opening cans. We're going to do a live tasting session. Here we go. You're already drinking yours, aren't you, Marissa? I am, I am. Oh, it is really delicious. Talk to me about the product. Once you've decided, look, I need to share this, learning this breakthrough that I've had with the wider community, how do you set about the formula, the ingredients, putting it all together? What's that? Presumably that's exciting, if a bit scary. <laughs> what, what, how, how did it work? Absolutely. So we've created Europe's first matcha green tea energy drink. And the way that we have done that is by standardizing for the amount of caffeine, 80 milligrams through matcha green tea, as well as 80 milligrams of L-theanine, which is an amino acid that negates all of the negative stimulatory effects of caffeine. And that is naturally abundant within matcha. But the process of putting it in the drinks, matcha is not the easiest ingredient to work with. It's not entirely soluble. So we have had to create a proprietary blending process in order to do so. But it gives us a barrier to entry within the space. And we feel we've created a product that is very resonant with the whole UK population because of the flavor profiles that we've accompanied the matcha with. So, for instance, apple and raspberry is one of our best sellers. That's what, and, we're, that's what we're drinking right now. Just yes. So our audience can imagine the fun that we're having. Exactly. Yeah. And I think those are two flavors that are quite familiar to people. But then we also have pineapple and yuzu. And yuzu is a fragrant Japanese citrus. And it's a super exciting ingredient. And it captures a lot of interest. So we also have pear ginger. And that is kind of like a healthier ginger beer. So I think by accompanying matcha with flavors that are both familiar yet exciting has also been key in attracting customers. Uh, and tell me about how you imagine this might travel, not to get ahead of ourselves, but you've already mentioned the influences from around the world and trying to address these sort of peculiar UK proclivities, whether that's coffee or tea drinking. Do you feel you've got a product, a recipe, 
a kind of a concept, I guess, that could and maybe will travel with ease? Or do you always have to be careful about market to market? There's always different specificities you have to think about. Absolutely. I think there will always be specificities. However, we are trading in about nine different countries at this point. And I think the fact that our brand is a medium to spread positive energy and the way that we do that is through our products. I think our message really is resonant with a global population, not just the Mm. UK one. And I think so many people suffer with anxiety, ADHD and other neurodiverse conditions across the world that this would be a more appealing type of caffeine for so many. So I think it can definitely transcend across different populations. And that's interesting because lots of the entrepreneurs that we've speaking to in the last two, three years, of course, one of the sort of attendant issues has been the pandemic and dealing with that. Often people launching and they're like, our big launch was March 2020. And then who knew? What's really interesting is, do you think there's been a different degree of introspection, a different degree of narrative around health and well-being, different neurodiverse conditions, a much more deep interest in people's mental health, partly because of the pandemic. But has that prompted a conversation that actually means this is a much better landscape for this kind of product, your kind of approach to go into? Are you aware of that? Do you think, would you agree with that reading? Absolutely. I would agree with that completely. I think the pandemic really allowed people to develop a more health conscious approach to their lifestyles and understand more the connection between what they're putting in their bodies and how it's making them feel both Mm. physically and mentally. And I think that there is a general heightened awareness around mental health and mental health conditions. And people are trying to use food as medicine to not just only remedy physical ailments, but mental ones. And so I think that there is this massive appeal in functional ingredients like matcha, because people are really seeing the benefits to both their physical and mental health now. I also think people are conscious that category leaders, I won't mention who, but they might not have the healthiest ingredients within their recipes. And what is that doing to their bodies? What is that doing to their minds? I think people are much more aware. And that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week. And thank you for listening.